This is an ABC podcast. Human beings are pretty quick learners when we want to be, but not so much when it comes to data security. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. The identity and access management firm Forgerock recently released its 2022 Consumer Identity Breach Report, and it makes for some very troubling reading. On a global basis, the total number of records compromised rose by 37% year on year, and that actually equates to some 4.7 billion records and Anthony, that is reported record breaches. We don't know how many unreported records out there. So it is a staggering number. And when you ask about what sort of information is being compromised in these breaches, well, it's increasingly data-rich information. And by that, Our breakdown showed that 99% contained names and addresses, roughly 60% included social security numbers or equivalent, depending where the breaches happen globally, 53% date of birth and 34% protected health information and 28% payment or banking information. So very data rich, And these records that are containing usernames and passwords are the perfect seeds for penetrating new breaches by cyber criminals. You can't say I didn't warn you. That's David Hope, Forge Rock's Senior Vice President for the Asia-Pacific and Japan. Today on the show, an overview of the problems we're still having with data storage and security, and a cautionary tale from Afghanistan. But let's stick with David for the minute and let that increase in reported data breaches sink in. An increase of 37%. It is a massive global problem that the world is trying to get its heads around. And it affects governments, it affects industries, and it affects individuals. And the cost, the cost to companies and global economies from these increasing cyber attacks is absolutely phenomenal. Just in the US alone, our survey showed that the average breach, the average cost to a company was 9.5 million last year. And, And that's an average. And when you consider that the cost to an organization that has had a major breach is not only reputational, is not only potential loss of business, but also there's increasing regulatory fines and costs as well. So the average cost as an impact of these breaches are increasing substantially as well. So where are the security weak points? That is a really, really good question because it's at both ends of the scale. And if we start with the consumer or the individual, I think human nature in general, we want simple and easy and frictionless access to the online world, but often we're not prepared to take the necessary steps to ensure that we have the necessary security in place. 
we've all been through those scenarios where we get a reminder about updating our, our passwords for our many online access points and we we sigh a little bit and say, oh, here we go again. What am I going to use this time? But really, the days of single password access has to change and is changing. So that's down at, at an individual level. And then at a, um, you know, a corporate or a government level, the challenge is to find that balance between a rich, a seamless and a simple customer experience but at the same time, having all the necessary levels of security is a challenge for companies and organisations. And that challenge shows itself most clearly when it comes to social media, because social media accounts, according to David Hope's report, can become and often are an open window for hackers. There is a significant increase in people who are using social media as their login mechanism when they sign into different platforms. And so if they've got weak security in their own individual settings, if they are compromised, then people with the wrong intent can use that social media login for other applications that they have used their social media login solutions for. So there's a challenge across a number of fronts that are being created by the increasing use and access of social media in terms of a wider usage and the volume that's been incurred by companies, organisations and governments who are using social media to reach consumers and citizens. The health sector and healthcare was an, an area that was identified a few years ago as particularly vulnerable, and I know that was especially the case in the United States. Is that still the case? Are we still seeing that as an area where breaches are occurring? Yes, we have seen a significant increase in breaches in, in healthcare. In the US in particular, very old systems typically in place in the healthcare sector is one area. It's a very data-rich environment because you have all the consumer's information stored across different healthcare records. So it's a sector that is being very aggressively targeted. And even here in our region, in Asia Pacific, we had a, we had a very high profile healthcare breach that happened in Singapore just over 14 months ago. And that was so high profile. It was even reported that the, you know, the prime minister's health records had been compromised. So it's a big issue in the US, but it's also a big issue globally and also a big issue in Australia as well. And broadly, I mean, you know, we've, we've been talking about breaches for a very long time. They do seem to be getting worse. As you say, organisations and governments are more aware of the problem and working towards that. But do, does it seem as though the future really is going to be just a perpetual game of catch-up? Yes, I think technology will keep developing to stay ahead or working to stay ahead of cybercrime. I think the real challenge is more and more of our lives are being dictated by online access. It's becoming absolutely ubiquitous in everything that we do, whether we pay bills, our banking, whether we access government services. So you've got an increasing volume of access globally to online services. Then you have an increasing sophistication of cyber criminals and people with wrong intent looking to drive malicious activity online. 
and you pull those pieces together. And then, as I was mentioning earlier, you've then got the challenges of organizations and governments trying to make it a seamless and frictionless environment for consumers or citizens to access their services. So it's a trade-off, but it is a continual, ongoing investment, a need, it's an education need, and that is both at an organisational level, it's at an individual level. It's unbelievable the investment that is required to manage and protect consumers and citizens globally. If people knew just how bad it is in terms of information quality and or lack of quality in some cases, we basically see this as a huge problem for many organizations. And most companies see it as, you know, until they get breached, until they're on the front page of the Financial Times or Wall Street Journal, they're not going to worry about it. It's not a big problem for them. Many organizations spend major resources trying to secure data leak, data issues. But the majority of companies that we've dealt with have kind of a large gap. You know, they have a long way to go for data breach management. That's Larry Poneman, a data protection and privacy researcher in the United States. So if you think about a data breach, there's the prevention issue, there's a detection issue, and then there's the containment. Once you've discovered it, you have to contain the data breach, which could take many, it's a surprise for many people. It's not a week or two weeks, but it averages out to be hundreds, you know, maybe 200 and some odd days on average. And it, it does average by organizational type and a whole bunch of other factors, but it definitely, it takes a lot of time to fully contain the data breach. And so a lot of folks that have companies that have a data breach for the first time, they think it's like turning on a lamp (laughs) or flicking the switch that basically, uh, you know, in in a matter of days or even hours, they have this resolved. There could be organizations dealing with containment two or three years. It's hard to believe this, but two or three years after the incident, the actual data breach that we track. A lot of companies have been encouraged over the last decade to move to the cloud, to move their operations to the cloud. You found, though, didn't you, that there were particular vulnerabilities with cloud-based operations? Yeah, absolutely. We find that companies that are deploying cloud, especially in public cloud environments, see a higher cost of data breach than companies that are primarily on-premise or implement more of a hybrid cloud model. Hybrid seems to be the way to go. It seems to be incredibly efficient for many organizations and can be made to be very safe from a data breach perspective. And we've also found that organizations are getting better at deploying a cloud hybrid cloud environments, but there's still a gap. Still companies get lost in the shuffle and find that, you know, they're not necessarily taking advantage of all the features of the online platform, the cloud platform, I should say. Now, cloud storage is the focus of discussion in Australia at the moment, as the Department of Home Affairs explores the potential benefits of establishing a national data security action plan. They currently have a discussion paper circulating for comment, and one point of contention that's already emerged among the tech community centres on future localisation requirements for data storage. Essentially, deciding whether or not the government should mandate that certain types of data must be stored in Australian-based data centres. Justin Hendry, the editor of InnovationOz.com, has been tracking the discussion. I guess it's contentious for a number of reasons on the part of tech giants and, I guess, the industry associations that represent them. The biggest one that they're canvassing is around cybersecurity 
there's a misconception out there that any data stored locally is safer than data stored overseas. They say that's not the case. There's no difference between data stored here or overseas in their servers. But the government, from the discussion paper that's calling for views, doesn't really have a position at this stage, but they just want to explore the area around data localization. I guess another issue that has been canvassed by the tech giants is around the broader impacts on the economy, the digital economy specifically. And apart from that, the other one would be, and, and this is presented by Meta, Facebook's parent company, they say it sets a troubling precedent for an open and free internet. And all these tech giants really have been calling for basically the status quo with the internet to keep it open and free for as long as possible. So anything, any reg possible regulation that might come up to, I guess, interfere with that, they're against a lot of countries like Vietnam have introduced policies around it to basically require backups in their own country, as well as overseas, but that there is a specific backup in the country of origin. And there is this argument that if something like a data breach was to happen, that the implications of that would be far less. Obviously, the tech giants don't feel that way. But this is, again, something that the government is currently canvassing and, and seeking views on as they develop a national data strategy or action plan that they intend will be sort of like a whole of economy type strategy. So where to from here with this issue? From here, there'll be a lot more industry consultation. There have been a lot of policies and, and there's legislation more recently regarding critical infrastructure providers. So last year and earlier this year, two bills were passed with regard to critical infrastructure. And one of those, one of the sectors covered by that, those laws is data processing and storage. So that's data centers and cloud providers. So this is a, a very live issue. And I think the consultation process that the Department of Home Affairs is currently going through will seek to sort of fill in some of the gaps that have perhaps emerged with this legislation more recently and also harmonize some of those different bits and pieces to make sure that, you know, everything is covered. But it's certainly a very live issue and I'm sure there'll be way more to come over the next, the coming months and, the, and, and year. Justin Hendry. I want to circle back now to David Hope from Fordrock and that comment he made earlier about an impending end to the days of single password access. There is a standard that has been agreed globally for biometric authentication. It's called the FIDO2 standard. And that standard is adhered to and agreed to now by the big players such as Apple, such as Microsoft, such as Samsung. And that's the first key step in getting a seamless biometric, such as your face recognition on your mobile phone. That is the first step. There is now the identity technology layer behind that that can manage that identity but the challenge, the challenge as we roll out to this vision of a passwordless society is we still have challenges, for example, at a consumer level with account recovery. So as an example, if a passwordless scenario was set up on an individual's mobile phone and that mobile phone was lost, what is the way that that individual would then get access again? There are ways around it, but it's not standardized. We still have a big part of the world where digital access and digital literacy and access to phones, et cetera, or you know, fingerprint readers, et cetera, is still in its infancy. But the real key is that it would be a step change and a big process change across industry. And it requires collaboration, 
alignment. I mentioned the FIDO2 standard. That's a key step in the right direction, but there is still a lot to do. But what is encouraging is the technical layer and the technical enablement of a passwordless future is already here. And you're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Now to that cautionary tale involving the sort of biometric data we've just mentioned. Eileen Guo is a senior reporter of Features and Investigations with the MIT Technology Review. Her cautionary tale is about what can happen when data falls into the wrong hands because the cost can involve more than just money. I lived in Afghanistan between 2012 and 2015, and that was around the time that Afghan biometric databases were really being deployed for the public. Before they were, Afghanistan had never and still has never completed a census. It didn't have a centralized digitized ID system. Instead, identity documents were paper-based and given the decades of conflict and displacement, hard to verify. And how Afghanistan came to embrace biometrics starts with the U.S. military. The U.S. was in Afghanistan waging a counterinsurgency against Taliban insurgents. And throughout the 2000s, that insurgency was growing and it was getting a lot better at killing American troops through roadside bombs and then disappearing into the population and evading capture. So the U.S. military became obsessed with something that it called identity dominance, essentially building a big biometric database of every Afghan that either worked for them or that they encountered with their fingerprints, iris scans, facial images, DNA. The idea was that the next time that there was some kind of incident, whether it was a roadside bomb or later on just a crime, they could sweep for fingerprints, hopefully match that fingerprint with someone in the database and then find the bomb maker. So it started with this military purpose, and that strategy was so effective that by 2010, the U.S. and the international community were encouraging the Afghan government to adopt biometrics as well, not just as a form of military targeting, but also for the purposes of governance and rule of law. So as one American military official put it back in 2010 during a biometrics conference that they were holding in Kabul, biometrics would help our Afghan partners understand who its citizens are, help Afghanistan control its borders, and allow the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan to have identity dominance. So the type of data, biometric data, that they were actually collecting in the end was quite extensive. The type of data that was being collected was quite extensive. It was also being collected and then stored in multiple databases. And it's somewhat important to distinguish between the American database, which was, again, for military purpose and and in some cases specifically for targeting and taking out bomb-making networks, and the Afghan databases that were kind of modeled on that, but for a different purpose, which was governance. Given the issues that Afghanistan had for many years, re-security, re-bribery, corruption, all of those kind of things, were the consequences of collecting this kind of material, were they taken into account at the beginning? That's such a good question, and it's, it's hard to know what the intent was. But based on the effects of what happened especially after the Taliban takeover almost exactly a year ago, but also in the years preceding that, it seems that the effects of these databases falling into the wrong hands really weren't accounted for. And that put a lot of people at risk. 
So what are the stakes involved for average Afghanis? Yeah, um, not to be dramatic, but for a lot of people, it's it's life or death. There was a really well-known incident in Afghanistan that happened back in 2016 where a bus of mostly civilians in the north of Afghanistan was taken hostage by Taliban insurgents. And later on, witnesses that were on the bus would recall how the Taliban insurgents had some kind of fingerprint scanning device, and they were using it to identify soldiers that, you know, were in plain clothes, were just on the bus going home to visit family. And they pulled 12 people off of the bus and killed them for working with the enemy. So those are the the really the highest stakes that you can think about. And when we're talking about these really large databases with very extensive information, I don't think you can get higher stakes than that. Is it possible to know how the Taliban has used this data, if indeed they have used this data? It's hard to say how the Taliban has used the data or even what of the data they have gotten access to. The Afghan government databases, they belong to the Afghan government. And the Taliban now is the Afghan government. And so the database that I was looking at, it's particularly sensitive. It's called the Afghan Personnel and Pay System, contained detailed profiles on everyone that has ever served or was registered as serving in the Afghan military or police. So really top of the list of who the Taliban would want to target. There's been some reporting since I did my story that the servers containing the data may have been moved out of the country, which makes that particular database perhaps secure. But there are numerous other databases that are probably now in the hands of the Taliban. What's the lesson, do you think, for the use of biometrics and data, this kind of collection in a country like Afghanistan? What should we take away from the experience there? I think there's a lot of lessons that we can take from Afghanistan, and and some of these are more applicable to conflict zones, to unstable regions, to international development contexts. And I think some of the lessons are also just more broadly applicable to how we think about information and and what we collect, what we allow to be collected. And I, I think one of the key things to understand is that the way that biometric data in Afghanistan was collected and stored was an extreme example, but it's not an outlier. It's on the continuum of how biometric systems are created around the world. And some of the experts that I spoke to for this story, they ask whether one of the best ways maybe to to safeguard such sensitive information is to question whether or not they're truly necessary. Eileen Guo from the MIT Technology Review. And finally today, to Toronto and a long overdue update on Google's push to build a futuristic community based on data, on monitoring and surveillance. The futuristic neighbourhood was to be called Keyside, and even its town planning would be controlled by a Google spin-off, Sidewalk Labs. Good afternoon, and as chair of the board of directors, I'm pleased to welcome and thank you for joining us today. Back in 2017, the launch was a high-powered event, even involving the Prime Minister. A world leader in urban innovation, Sidewalk Labs will create a testbed for new technologies in Keyside. 
Technologies that will help us build smarter, greener, more inclusive cities, which we hope to see scaled across Toronto's eastern waterfront and eventually in other parts of Canada and around the world. Now, the neighbourhood of the future failed to attract public support and it was eventually dumped. Carrie Jacobs is an author and blogger who specialises in architecture and design. And she can tell us about what's now taken its place. What's in the forefront in the renderings and the descriptions of the new version of Keyside is foliage, trees, plants, a rooftop urban farm. I would guess it's a two-acre park, but they're describing it as a two-acre forest. And so while the old version of Keyside was leading with technology, what the new version is leading with is sort of greenery and a green attitude. There are other things. There are going to be, you know, 800 affordable housing units. There is a cultural space that is designated as a space for, I guess the term they use in Canada is is First Nations, Indigenous people, people's cultural space. The message is that we're 180 degrees in the opposite direction. It's a valid question whether today's green city might not have as much technology embedded in it as the smart city of 2017. But the attitude and the ideas that are driving it and marketing it and selling it politically are very different. Is it fair to to read it as a rejection of the smart city idea? Yes and no. In the case of Keyside, in the case of Toronto, I think the answer is yes. I mean, it felt like a decisive blow against the idea that data and monitoring and optimization was going to make a better city. So did Sidewalk Labs, which was the Alphabet company that was responsible for the ideas for Keyside Mark One, do they misread, in a sense, what people actually find attractive about urban areas or want in their urban areas? It's not clear to me that they ever really even thought about that. For developers and for urban planners, what do you think's the takeaway message, as they say, from the failure of Keyside One? I guess there are a couple of things. One is that technological innovation in and of itself is not an amenity that's going to be universally appealing. I mean, there may be things that are really genuinely useful to people, but a lot of what people want right now are kind of low tech, you know, like bike lanes, things that are maybe no more sophisticated than paint on pavement with maybe some barriers. And also, I think that people are hugely concerned anywhere you go about global warming, about the state of the planet, and at the same time, don't necessarily know what they can do about it. So it makes the idea of a city, a green city, one that prioritizes you know, trees and plantings, that much more appealing. Whether or not that's enough, and I suspect that it's not nearly enough, it makes people who buy into a plan like that or people who support a plan like that feel like they're doing something positive. And the data-centric nature of the original proposal, was that eternal for people, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was a huge political issue in Toronto and there was the perception that the sidewalk team was not taking fairly passionate criticism seriously. 
one point, Dan Doktoroff was saying, to, was quoted in the New York Times saying, you know, oh, well, they think we're Google, but we're not really Google, which seemed not to help his argument that, you know, Sidewalk Labs was part of Alphabet or Google when it wanted to be, but when it was controversial, they weren't. Um, but they were for some fairly formidable people. A woman named Bianca Wiley was just really on the ball, asking questions about who would own the data and who would have access to it very early. There was a guy named Jim Balsilli, who was one of the partners that made the BlackBerry, right? Do you, I don't know if you remember the BlackBerry. It was sort of the, yes, indeed. the, ha- the handheld device that it seemed like at least every guy in the world had before the smartphone, before the iPhone came along. And his business was pretty much undermined uh, you know, by the advent of the smartphone. But he was still a fairly important person in Canada and in Toronto. And he was just very, very vocal in his opposition to the sort of idea of having a private company collecting so much data and then owning that data and doing God knows what with it. Carrie Jacobs and the controversial surveillance suburb that ended up going green. My co-producer here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.